bring him in now. Former NBA player, Trent Tucker. Trent, how are you? Uh, Paul, I'm doing very good. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Trent, we got to get your thoughts on the last dance as you played for the Chicago Bulls in 1993, won your first NBA title that particular season. We look at Michael Jordan, and a lot of people talk about Michael Jordan and how he pushes his teammates and how he pushes and he pushes and he keeps on pushing. Looking at Michael Jordan and how hard he pushed people, you were a part of that. What was it like playing with him? It was great because, you know, for me, uh, the one thing I knew Every night we went out to play, I had a great chance to win. I was in a great situation now because I was on a team that was good enough, you know, to win a championship. And Michael Jordan, you know, the intensity was there every single day. You know, he wasn't asking us to be Michael Jordan. He was just asking us to bring the same energy and effort and commitment, you know, to the game that he brought on a daily basis, to the job that we were supposed to do so that it would give us a chance to win games. And for me, it was a great atmosphere to be in because when you play on a team that is that good and you play with a player who is that good, there's pressure and expectation every single night to go out to play. And if you're not willing or able you know, to deal with, with, with the pressure and the expectation that comes with that, you know, it's the wrong place for you to be. Now, you played in New York, so – you find that that Chicago situation with Michael Jordan was more intense? Well, the pressure of New York is like no other. And I think, you know, by being in New York for as long as I was, it prepared me, you know, for the situation in Chicago. And in New York City, we all know that the media attention is there and the expectation is to be good on a daily basis. is always in front of you. And when you go to another environment, and the intensity level is high in that environment. And by being in New York City, it prepares you for anywhere you go and play. What is your personal relationship like with Jordan? Mike and I have always had a wonderful relationship. You know, by me being a little bit older when I got to the team, where he and I were, we were able to spend some time outside of basketball and just talking about different things here and there. We were we found out that we had some of the same likes. We enjoyed some of the same music. We had a chance to talk about, you know, family and where we came from and, and how we got to certain places here or there. And I could pick his brain, you know, about, you know, what it took for him to get to this level. But most of our conversations never dealt with basketball once the game was over. And when you're able to create, you know, that type of relationship you know, away from the game, it's going to give you a bond, you know, that's going to last for a very long time. So you look at Michael Jordan, we look at the documentary, and Michael Jordan said in that 93 season that he was tired. Did, did you sense that? Oh, for sure, because after the, dream, after, the, after the dream team in 92, you know, Michael had thought about retiring after the, after the dream team Olympic run. And when he came back to Chicago, he was worn out, and he was trying to figure out, okay, What's the motivation to go into another season? I've won back-to-back championships. I have another Olympic gold medal. It's been a very long season. I haven't had any time to rest my body, you know, to get myself back together. So this might be the right time now to step aside. So he sat down and, and talked to Phil Jackson, and he asked Phil the same question. 
It's a Western motivation. And Phil said, well, Larry Bird has back-to-back championships. Magic Johnson has won back-to-back championships. Michael Jordan now has won back-to-back championships. But those guys have never won three in a row. You have a chance now to do that. And you can separate yourself away from Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. He said, Phil, I see you tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. <laughs> so you weren't you weren't surprised when he stepped away in '93. Now it was a long run, and you could just see you know the wear and tear, and it's a long season when you when when you go to a to a championship. The off season is short. The recovery time to get ready for training camp for the next season is is just around the corner. You play into mid-June, and you take two weeks off, take three weeks off. Now you're into the middle of July. The training camp is only two months away. And now you have to prepare yourself, get ready to get back in shape to start another long run. And after three consecutive years of being you know, in that environment, you could see how things were beginning to wear on him. Glad and happy and lucky that he decided to stay around for the 92-93 season to give me a chance to win my first NBA championship. But I was not surprised at all to see Michael Jordan step away in 1993. Now, you stepped away also at the end of the 93 season. Was Mm -hmm. that long season, did that play any role in that? It was long for me as well, but I knew that I had reached the pinnacle of my career, I knew that going forward, uh, this would be the right way, you know, to end. Maybe I, I could have played another year or so, but I didn't want to. But I felt like that. This is this is the ultimate way to end your career. You have a chance to go out as an NBA champion, and many guys never never have a chance to end their careers the right way. We all know that professional sports sometimes can be unkind to players once they get to the end of the road. And for me, I felt like that, you know, this was the perfect way to walk away. I felt like that Michael Jordan may not come back, the team may not be the same, but also physically, the things that I had to do to get myself in shape to play at that level, uh, it was becoming harder and harder to do as the years went by, and I just did not commit myself over the summer to get him back in shape once again. We're talking to former NBA player Trent Tucker. So, Trent, 1993, it also brought upon the situation with Michael Jordan and the trip to Atlantic City. What was your perspective? Obviously, you were there. What were your thoughts on that situation? I had no thoughts at all. I mean, that didn't save us at all. I mean, we never even thought about that. I didn't even know that. And it had even taken place until the media, you know, had brought it to our attention. But, you know, that was no major concern of ours. I was at that time. The only thing that we were concerned about that we were down to the New York Knicks and, and how could we find a way to deal with the physicality of this basketball team? Because the first two games, they pushed us around. They knocked us around. Uh, they wouldn't allow us to run our offense. We couldn't get to the spots on the floor where we could execute because they were they were pushing us a step farther away from our comfort zone. So our main focus going back into game number three with all the other stuff surrounding on the outside 
is that we need to come up with a game plan to deal with the physicality first of the New York Knicks. We felt like that we had the better team, you know, but we just didn't know if we could deal with them physically. And once we figured out how to negate you know, their physicality, then our speed and skill and quickness uh, took over. Obviously, this is not your issue, but from your standpoint and what you saw, did you sense Jordan had any type of gambling problem? No, not at all. And he, like he said, he had a competition problem because he just loves to compete. You know, at the end of the day, you know, Mike is a Mike is a guy's guy. You know, he likes to hang out with the boys and, and do some of some of the you know some of the uh, the fun things that other people like to do. But I never sensed that Mike had a gambling problem. Now going back to that '93 series against the New York Knicks, you guys were down too well, and ultimately you guys figured out how to beat that basketball team. Looking at that 93 Knicks team, did you feel like that was their best opportunity to win a title? I thought 94 the next year was, but they were okay. very good. You know, Pat Riley had, you know, had brought a different style. When he was with the Lakers, it was showtime. You know, fast-breaking basketball, slam-dunking Magic Johnson, you know, bringing showtime and excitement to the fans. When he came to the Knicks, you know, he didn't have – you know, that, that personnel. So the first thing he did, he took, you know, the physical strength of Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason and Charles Smith along with Patrick Ewing and the toughness of Doc Rivers and John Starks and made them a physical basketball team, grinded out, pounded your team, pounding, pounding into submission until, until they were wilt under this pressure. So the Knicks were very strong. They were very, very good. And after we were able to tie up the series at 2-2, Going back into game number five, we felt like that if we're going to win this series, we win game number five. And knowing that how tough the Knicks are going to be, they had a 27-game home winning streak. And for us to go into Madison Square Garden on that night and knock them off just shows you how mentally tough the Chicago Bulls were during that time. So from your point of view, your vantage point, did Charles Smith get fouled at least once on that exchange? <laughs> I would have to say not at all. <laughs> okay. I, I, I thought somebody got him at least once. So you got hit once. Had to. <laughs> you know, I had a very close look. I was right there at the you know, at the end of the bench and, and, and I could see all the you know, all the hands moving toward the ball at that time and and sitting on the bench, we were just waiting for maybe the official to make a call here or there, you know, but, you know, game five, you know, last possession, playoff basketball, and, and knowing the officials like I know them, you know, they never want to be in a situation where they have to decide the outcome of a game. Let me ask it this way. If you had a New York Knicks jersey on, was that a foul? Oh, for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to make sure. <laughs> so, you felt like if you don't win that game five, you don't win that series. No, it had been too hard to win a game seven. It had been we probably been it had been very hard to win a game seven because we knew going into game five we had a game to play with, and all the pressure now was on the New York Knicks. We saw this as you know the first of two game sevens for them. If you lose game five, now you go into an elimination game. 
going back to Chicago down, you know, three games to two, knowing how tough the Bulls have been on their home floor, you put yourself in a bad situation. We just felt like that if we could stay close, stay in the game, make a play here and there to, to, to make a difference, and we were able to come up with a nice defensive play at the end, uh, with, the, with us being down by two in the latter part of the fourth quarter with inside of a minute or so, you know, B.J. Armstrong makes a big-time three-point shot from the left corner to put us up by one, and then our defense took over from, from there to get us to win. For sure, and ultimately, you guys, you would get your first NBA title, and the Bulls would win their third, their third straight NBA title. So, Michael Jordan, obviously a special player that goes without saying. Some people believe he's the greatest of all time. In your opinion, what separated Michael Jordan from everybody else in that era, the era of Barkley and Ewing, what separated Michael Jordan? Winning for one, you know, but, you know, his ability to rise to the occasion in the biggest moments. You know, Michael Jordan had that unique ability when the game was on the line that he could make every play. And every time he went out, you know, to play, I just felt like that we had a chance to win. And I would take you back to a game, you know, during the regular season. We on the road playing the Utah Jazz. We weren't having a good game as a team, and Michael wasn't playing particularly well throughout the first three quarters. All of a sudden, still a small lineup, and Michael Jordan now becomes the point guard. We go to what we call a one-four set but we just flatten it out and put shooters around Michael Jordan. We spot up guys all over the floor, and we let him just stay in the middle of the floor and go one-on-one. We're down by 17, and he wasn't playing well. But all of a sudden, 17 gets down to 13. 17 gets down to 11 because now the guys who have come in, we've made some shots from the outside. And then all of a sudden, he got to the free throw line. He saw the ball go in the basket. And you could just feel the intensity. You could just feel him coming. And you knew that in the last four or five minutes that he was going to take over the game, even though he had shot well up until that point, that in the last four minutes, Michael Jordan was going to make every shot coming down the stretch. And he was able to do that down by 17 at the end of three. We won the basketball game by eight going away. And that is Michael Jordan. That is just that's, how special. That's Michael Jordan. Yes. So, how would Michael Jordan do in today's era of basketball? You know, some people say that he would average 40-plus. You know, obviously with the rules, the way they are today, it does favor offense. How would Michael Jordan be in this era of basketball? I would say in year number three of his career, he averaged, I think, close to 37 points a game. And that that being a real big-time three-point shooter, the game was a little bit more physical back then, but you could hand check. You know, they didn't call as many close fouls as they made today. I think a young, attacking, aggressive Michael Jordan would average anywhere close to 45 to 50 points a game. Okay. Yeah. 45 to 50. Let me, let me counter that for a moment. And mm-hmm. obviously you played the game. But the way back then in comparison to now, now – you have a lot more athletes. Would that have made a difference? No, because you don't have as many defenders at the rim, the big guys to protect the basket. 
like you had okay. when he first came into the league. Because now most of your big guys are pick-and-pop players. They play away from the hoop. So Jordan driving down the lane will not have met the same resistance that he met when he first came into the league. Jeff Rulin, Rick Mahorn, uh, Bill Lambeer, Patrick Ewan, Akeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, just to name a few. So the game back then relied more on the big guys being the last line of defense, where today, you know, the big guys are kind of away from the basket. So to drive the lanes, you know, you can't put a hand on Michael Jordan. Every time you touch him, he's going, he, every time you touch him, he's going to go to the free throw line. So I say to average anywhere between 45 and 50 points a night, he may have gone to the free throw line anywhere between 12 to 16 times a night as well. We look at those Bulls teams, and, and some people say if Michael Jordan never retired, this team easily could have won eight to ten championships in a row. If Michael Jordan and that Bulls team would have stayed together in 1994, do they win again, do you think? I believe so. I, I would have to think they would have been the favorite to win once again. It all depends on, you know, doing the offseason, the type of pieces that you bring in to add to the team. Are you looking to bring in some younger talent now that that can help you during the regular season to take some of the pressure off of Scottie Pippen and, and Michael Jordan? But just based on them being three-time the NBA champions, I would have to say yes. You know, but the resistance from the New York Knicks and the Eastern Conference would have been there for sure. Uh, they added Derek Harper, who I thought was a fantastic player for them during that time. And the Houston Rockets would have had Kim Olajuwon. I would have to say in 1993, of all the teams that we faced during that time, the toughest team for us to beat were, you know, were the Houston Rockets. We couldn't deal with the Kim Olajuwon. We had to go double-team him, and he was – kicking the ball back out, Robert Ory knocking down three-point shots, Bernie Maxwell with his speed and quickness. He was able to ball fake and get into the rim, get to the rim, into the lane to make plays. That was a very, very difficult team for us to deal with in those two games that we had to play against them during the regular season. So if we had to play them in the seven-game series, it would have been very, very tough. But somehow, way, I believe that with Michael Jordan in that situation, he would have found a way to come out on top of We're talking to former NBA player Trent Tucker. So, Trent, also, you know, throughout the Last Dance documentary, we we see the talk of Scotty Pippen in terms of his contract. And ultimately, you know, it kind of came to head during the last season. But did you sense or did you see anything in relation to his attitude towards that contract and that whole situation? Well, when he he went in to sign the contract and – you know, the owner at that time, Jerry Reinstorf, told Scotty that, you know, if you take this deal, don't come back in and ask us, you know, to redo this deal again. And how can you tell a person not to take $18 million guaranteed at that time? $18 million is a lot of money at any time, but some 20-some years ago, almost 25 years ago, that was a lot of money for sure back then. But as time moved on, salaries got became bigger. Scotty Pippen said Max Love in terms of what contracts he should be under. But he signed the deal. And once you make the deal, you have to live up to those obligations. 
and Chicago Bulls out front stated that if you take this deal today, we're not going to go back and, and, rene- and renegotiate until your contract is over. So Scotty had, he had to make a choice. And when you make a choice, you have, you have to live with that choice. For sure. And, and ultimately, as the years went by, it, it turned out to be a bad choice, but he did get his money in future situations. Looking mm-hmm. at, again, at those 93 Bulls and looking at the series against the Phoenix Suns, it is my opinion, and, and I could be wrong, that if that series gets to seven, I think the Suns get you guys. Your thoughts on that? I, I, you know, I could agree with that. I, I could agree with that. Uh, for sure. We didn't want to go back to Phoenix. We won the first two games on the road. Now you're going back to Chicago for the, for the three middle games on your home floor. So we're thinking on the plane ride back to Chicago after game two, there's no way, there's no way that we're coming back to Phoenix for another game this year. There, we just can't believe the Phoenix Suns can win two out of three games on our home floor. They almost won all three of those games on our home floor. And it took a really good defensive play by D.J. Armstrong at the end of the game on Kevin Johnson to close the deal out. And it took a wonderful performance from Michael Jordan to score 55 points also to get us to a 3-1 lead. So if you go into game five, you know, with a chance to close it out, to win the championship, everybody's going to celebrate tonight. There was too many distractions. You know, you got family members, you got friends at the game. What's the celebration going to be like? Who's going to get a chance to come onto the floor out of your group to be out there doing the celebration? Where are they going to park our cars? You know, what's going to happen to the city after we win the championship? So we were focusing on all the things outside of the game. We had no chance to beat the Suns that night because our minds were somewhere else. And they came in and played a wonderful game and, and won game five to force us back to game number six. And if I, you know, I have to agree with it. It would have been very, very tough for us to win a game seven if we don't win game number six. Now, I want to ask you this. I mean, we saw the situation now with the New York Knicks. You played with Patrick Ewing. Charles Oakley recently has been very critical of Patrick Ewing, calling him high maintenance, calling him a very tough guy to play with. How was it for you to play with Patrick Ewing? It was great for me to play with someone like Patrick Ewing. Anytime for a player like myself who was a catch-and-shoot guy, if I got great point guards who can penetrate and break down the defense, I'm going to create spacing for them. Now when my man goes to, to cut down on the penetration, they can kick it out. Now I can, I can knock down the open jump shot. If I have an inside player, we play two-man basketball, and if he's a dominating guy down low, all of a sudden now the defense has to make a decision. Do we stay with home with the shooter, or do we go double down on the big guy? So by having a threat like Patrick Ewing, you know, was, was, a, was a real treat for me because – he was able to open up my game from the outside. So you didn't – he wasn't high maintenance to you playing with him. You didn't sense any of those things. No, but whenever you're able to, to play with a, you know, with a great talent and they can do so many other things for the teams in terms of, of helping other players now find their space up inside the offense. 
So whenever Patrick Ewing was on the floor, and if I was on the floor with him, you know, he would be able to create that spacing for me just because he was so good as an offensive player down low, the team had to focus first on trying to slow him down so that when he got double teamed, we made sure that he would make the extra pass, and then that was going to lead to a good shot. As long as we, we all were on the same page on how to play basketball the right way, you know, playing with someone like Patrick Ewing became easier for me to play. David. You were a sniper. You were a big-time shooter. How would your game translate today? Uh, today's game would fit the, the style I play uh, perfect, wide open, shooting three-point shot. Because when I came into the league in 1982, if you took more than two three-point shots in a week, <laughs> not in the game, <laughs> but in a week, you know, that was considered to be a lot. And when Rick Pitino came in in 1986, 87, 88, 89, 88, 89, he opened up the game. We played back then like the guys play today. Pressing and trapping, fast-paced basketball, shooting the three in transition. So how the game is played today would have been a perfect situation for me. You were born too soon. I was born too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. We have the whole situation with COVID-19, which has shut down sports pretty much at this point in time. In your opinion, do you think the league should try to finish this season? Only if they can secure safety for all the people who would have to be involved. Players, coaches, personnel, members of the teams. Uh, equipment managers, bus drivers, uh, people in the hotels who are going to be taking care of the players at this time. It's an unusual time for sure. It's a very difficult time for a lot of people. But I think the most important thing that we all have to think about is the safety of the people we are asking to be a part of this situation. I love sports just like I would love to see the game come back and resume. But at the end of the thing, there's nothing more important than health. If you don't have your health, then you don't have anything. You can recover from a lot of different situations, but it's very difficult to recover from bad health. And I wouldn't want anyone in any major sport or any profession to be in a situation where they are, where they are in harm's way. Now, I want to ask you this. You... you been around the Minnesota Timberwolves. You were an analyst at one point for the Timberwolves. We see the whole situation with Kevin Garnett and Glenn Taylor, the owner of the Timberwolves, not seeing eye to eye. In your opinion, can you see that situation getting resolved? I don't know. I, I really don't know. I've been asked, you know, this question, you know, over and over again. I just don't know. Uh, you would like to think that when two people have a difference going on between the two or they have some sort of issues taking place between the two that you believe that they might be able to work it out. But this situation here, I just don't know. I, I, I just don't know. It's an unfortunate situation. Hopefully it can be, but to your point, who knows 
if that whole situation can be worked out. So what is going on with Trent Tucker today? Well, you know, once I left the game of basketball, I went into the nonprofit world along with, with broadcasting. So I've been doing my weekly radio show here in Minnesota for the last 25 years. I started, you know, back in June of 1995, the year that Kevin Garnett was drafted. And then I kind of, you know, began to navigate into the, uh, to the educational side of the nonprofit world, working with middle school kids, promoting early college awareness, you know, giving them a, a, a sense of, of hope, you know, that things can be different. And letting them know that there are people out here who are willing to help them if they are willing to, you know, to meet them to meet them halfway. And today, education is the most important thing that our kids can have. You like for them to be in extracurricular activities because that's great for them as well. But school is the safest place for our kids to be. I know our school system sometimes may not be at their best, but for the safety and the growth and development of a young person, education has to be first and foremost. Sure. Totally agree. It's a game changer, and it changes things, and it could change an individual situation. So let me ask you and this. Let me I, ask you this. The re- Go ahead. Okay. And, and I can add one more thing. And the reason I, I, I focus so much on education today is because back in the middle 2005, 2006, somewhere in that, in that neighborhood, the University of Minnesota, my alma mater, had an assistant coaching position that was available. Not to say that the head coach was going to hire me for that position, but my name was in the conversation. But the reason that I wasn't qualified for the job at that time wasn't because I didn't know basketball. It's because I hadn't finished my college degree. And what I didn't finish some 20-plus years before came back to haunt me 20-some years later. Wow. I couldn't blame anyone but myself. Uh, there was an opportunity that was there because I love to teach basketball, to talk basketball, to be around you know, the game, to see if I could help young people develop. And now there was an opportunity sitting in front of me on a collegiate level. But I wasn't prepared is because I didn't do my job before. And the reason I like to tell that message to young people is that because you never know in life when your opportunities are going to come. If you're not good enough when they come, you can live with that. It's disappointing, but you can live with that. But if you are not prepared, that's very, very hard to take. And Paul, until this day, I may never, ever get a chance to coach again. It's right. because I wasn't prepared when that opportunity came. That's a great story. Powerful story. Powerful story. I, I want to ask you this. You said, you know, you, you've been around Kevin Garnett a long time. Let me ask you this. Where does he rank? in terms of the greatest power forwards to play the game? To me, he's up there. He's up there. I, I look at the time when I was doing broadcasting for the Wolves and some of the players that he had to play against on a nightly basis. 
And many people would always ask, Where, where's Kevin Garnett? I said, well, and look at the guys he had to play against just in the Western Conference during his time. And I may forget and leave somebody off the list. Sean Kemp was in Seattle. We all know how tough he was. Amar Stoudemire in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Tim Duncan in San Antonio. Chris Webb, Sacramento. Dirk Nowitzki in Dallas. Carl Malone in Utah. And then Charles Barkley came over. And I know then we have Rasheed Wallace in Portland. Yeah. So just think about all the guys that he had to guard. Just in the Western Conference, I'm not even talking about the East. I'm not even, I'm not even put Kobe and Shaq in the mix. I didn't even put them in the mix. <laughs> and those guys I just mentioned, I would say a large percentage of them had Hall of Fame type talent. And for Kevin Garnett to be a mention among that class, so his name has to be right there at the top of the all-time great power forwards to play this game. So where can fans find information about some of the great things going on with Trent Tucker? Well, now I'm working for a nonprofit organization called Hunger Impact Partners. And you can find us at hungerimpactpartners.org. And one of the things we're working on now, we have a mobile app that's called Free Meals for Kids. And you can download it, you know, either Google or uh, on your iPhone, or Android phone, or whatever other phone or device you may have. And what it does, it identifies locations at this time with schools being out where food is being served in your community. The different locations and the times and the type of food that is being served is because a lot of kids who live in inner-city environments depend on the school meals. And then during this pandemic, the schools are closed. And some of the schools are still trying to find a way to serve these meals, but we are trying to do our part as well by letting the public know that there are other locations also that are providing meals for families and kids. And that's a great, great thing. And, and to your point, there are sadly individuals, kids, who are not eating regularly because of being out of school. So what you're doing is big time for those particular kids and big time for the community. Trent, absolute pleasure talking to you, sir. Wish you nothing but the best of luck moving forward. Would love to do it again. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Just give me a call and let me know. For sure. Take care of yourself. Stay safe. Okay. You do the same, man. Thanks.